All right. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Did you figure out what your favorite candy was? How many of you are like me? You can't decide. You just say, just, just bring me the variety pack. That'll be good. Hey, how many jerseys we got in here? I, I, dude, I see some Cowboys. You like my Cowboys jersey? Yeah? Not all of you like my Cowboys jersey. Hey, I got it on clearance. It's a Tony Romo. I found him right next to about 300 Kaepernicks. All right, how about let's read the Bible now. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? I am so excited, guys. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get you one. But I am fired up, not just because football is back, but because of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, all right? I'm going to talk about something that if you engage in this one area of the Christian life, if you invest in this area of the Christian life, you are setting yourself up to be effective in all other areas of the Christian faith, okay? There are activities that you can do that you should do as a Christian, but you can isolate yourself to a particular activity at the expense of all the others, and in doing so, you will not grow. But if you invest in this one area, you will effectively be successful in other areas, and that is God's design. Are you, are you, do I have your curiosity peaked now? All right, well, what I want you to do is if you turn to Ephesians 4, would you stand with me? We're not going to read the whole text right now because... Darn it, there's 16 verses, and it's just going to take too long. We're going to go through them as we go, but we are going to pray right now, okay? Heavenly Father, oh, Lord, we just thank you. It's such a blessing to be able to come into your house together and to open your word together and to, and to just worship together as we have done and to pray together, God, and we lift up people in Florida. And we pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. And that damage would be kept to a minimum as they uh, endure the ravaging winds of Hurricane Irma, God. And we, may we, in a similar sense, be guarded, be protected against winds of doctrine that sweep through our societies. Winds of, of deception and uh, secularism and everything that the devil would like to throw at us to knock us off course and to distract us. And God, may we remain steadfast, and may we find shelter in one another and in your word as we continue to grow into your likeness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you can tell what a kid is going to grow up to look like by looking at their parents. Okay, the other day I walked into a coffee shop. I was going to meet some people for coffee. And this lady says to me, don't your kids go to Big Valley and I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, they do. They just started there this semester. She said, my husband works there, and your, your son, I think, is in his class. He looks just like you. Isn't that something? Poor kid. You know, people said that to my dad growing up about me, and now look what they're saying. When my wife and I found out we were going to have daughters, I prayed intensely, dear God, let them look like their mother. But you can tell what a kid looks like. By looking at the parents. Let me ask you a question. What does a Christian look like when they're fully grown up? What does a Christian look like when they have grown up? You know, Philippians chapter 2 gives us a snapshot of what we look like when we are fully matured Christians. When we have completed this journey of sanctification, guess who we look like? We look like Jesus Christ. 
And in Philippians 2, it describes him, how he is perfectly loving and he is perfectly obedient. He is perfectly selfless. And he is all of these things that you and I are not naturally, okay? That's where we are heading, ideally, in the will of God. Now, second question. Where does a Christian go to grow up? Where does a Christian grow? To grow up. That's what we're looking at today. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us about. And in order to grow up to look like Jesus, a Christian goes to church. A Christian goes to church. Now, I'm not talking about a church service, all right? Uh, We have four of them on the weekends. You're at one of them. Just because you come to one church service on the weekend does not mean you're going to look like Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about is not a service, but connecting, uh, engaging in meaningful and productive ways with this entity, this, this thing, this concept, this body called the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. And Paul is writing about this. He says that you need to grow to look like Jesus Christ, and you do that this way, all right? Now, something amazing has happened over the last... 50 years, the church universally has grown. It has expanded. People have come to faith in Jesus Christ in droves. In fact, in the last 40 to 60 years, more people have come to faith in Christ than were converted in the previous two centuries. Isn't that amazing? And yet, Pastor John Stott, he's no longer with us. He's in heaven now. But he observed the following. He says, there's a paradox in the world. He said, on the one hand, the church has grown by leaps and bounds. But on the other hand... In the church, there is a superficiality. It's everywhere. He said there's growth without depth. He said the church is a thousand miles wide, but it's only about a half an inch deep. And Paul is calling us to a depth, to be deeper in our faith so that we look like Jesus. He writes in verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you, he begs us, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the church has grown, but how does it deepen? How do you as a believer deepen in your Christian life? People have been talking about that for centuries. How do we do that? What is the key to the deeper Christian life? And people look to what we call the four corners of the Christian life. The four corners of the Christian life, what are they? Well, there's prayer, there's Bible study, there's witnessing, and there's this thing called community. And people have debated, what is the most important of these four corners of the Christian life? Is it prayer? Do we, do we just focus our attention on prayer? Let me ask you, is prayer important? Prayer is important. Prayer is where the power comes from. If you are a Christian that does not pray, you do not receive any power in your life because that's where it flows from. It flows from God above into your life. Okay, a few weeks ago, we had a water gun fight here on a Saturday night. We had all these kids out there with water pistols, and they're just blasting away at each other, okay? Reminds me, when I was a kid in the summertime, kids from the neighborhood would congregate on somebody's front lawn, and they'd all go to town with water pistols. The smart kid would hook the hose up to the house and put the, piss, the, you know, the water gun, uh, uh, on, the spray gun on there and just mow everybody down, right? Now, if the other kids got smart, what would they do? They'd put a kink in the hose, right? And so then they could bombard the guy with the hose. If you do not pray, you have a kink in your hose. 
You got to unkink the hose so that the, the power can flow through your life. Amen? But what if all you do in your Christian life is pray? What if that's it? What if all you do is pray? Are you going to look like Jesus? You sacrifice everything else and you just pray, 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 pray? No. If that's all you do, you're going to focus only on the experiential. You're going to be an emotional person. You're just going to become a mystic. You're going to become a Jedi. You knew I'd get a Star Wars reference in there somewhere, didn't you? Okay, is that what God wants? No, you need something to ground you. You need something to be a foundation from which you operate. What is our foundation? It's the word of God. And that's the second corner of the Christian life, Bible study. Is Bible study important? Absolutely it's important. We need to open the book. We need to study the word of God. We need to memorize scripture and we need to apply it. The word of God is powerful. It is the foundation. It's how you validate everything else in your life. If you hear something in a prayer environment, it is validated by the word of God. It cannot contradict God's word. If somebody comes to you and says, here's what I'm hearing from the Lord, and you know your Bible and it doesn't gel with scripture, you chuck it. You don't use it. But let me ask you, is Bible study enough? Is studying the word alone enough for you to look like Jesus? That's not enough. You might as well buy a brand new car and park it in your garage and pop that glove compartment and take out that new manual and then take that in the house and just spend all of your time obsessing over the manual and reading the manual and memorizing portions of the manual and learning everything there is to know about the car, about how to work all the doodads on the inside and what kind of tires they recommend and what kind of fuel it takes and how much horsepower it's got and all that stuff. Well, you could even learn Japanese, you know, so you could study the manual in the original language. <laughs> but what's the point of the manual? To drive the car, right? Otherwise, you're missing out. The point of the Word of God is to operate your life and to be obedient to what the Bible says. And what is the one thing that is most important that we call our greatest command in the Scripture for disciples? It's on that wall outside this room right now. It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? And that leads to the third corner of the Christian life, witnessing. Acts 1.8, you are to be my witnesses. Tell people about Jesus. Share your faith, okay? Is that enough? Is it important? Yes. What if that's all you did? If all you do is run around and you just tell people about Jesus, you just win converts, you invite them to church, is that good enough for you to become like Christ? Not on its own. Because then your Christian experience is a ministerial experience. That's it. If all you do is pray, you just focus on the experiential. If all you do is study the Bible, then you're just an academic. You're all analytical. If all you do is tell people about Jesus, then you're just, you're just a works-oriented person. You're just obedient. You're just ministerial in your efforts. All of these things are important, but you can do them and still skip the others. And if you do any of them without great men of faith and great women of faith surrounding you, you at some point will become bizarre. You will become strange. You will become weird. What you need is the fourth corner of the Christian life. And that's what we call community. Community. You need to surround yourself with other believers and be in relationship with them because if you do that, 
you will grow and you will become a person who prays. You will become a person who studies the word. You will become a person who shares their faith with other people. That is how community works. You set yourself up to be effective in all these other areas. And that's what we're talking about today. Being in relationship with one another. We are in this together. Amen? Now, why has God designed for us to be in community? I'm going to go through this with you. I'm going to give you four things. There's probably a lot more. I know there's a lot more reasons than that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four, okay? First of all, in your notes, we are made in God's image, and he is personal. He is a personal God, okay? Now, I want you to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to be the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now, there are three persons referenced in these three verses. What are they? Well, in verse 4, you've got one spirit. In verse 5, you've got one Lord. Who is the Lord? That's Jesus Christ. He's the Son. In verse 6, you've got one God and Father of all. That's God the Father. So who do we have? We've got Father, we've got Son, we've got Holy Spirit. What do we call that? That's the Trinity. Amen. Yes, this is the, the character and the nature of God. He is three persons in one. He is one God, but he is triune in his personality. There is a Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, and they are perfectly unified. Now, is this just a New Testament concept? No, this, this runs the length of Scripture. You can go back into the Old Testament. You can see the triune nature of God. You can actually go back to the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God, and that Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Elohim. It's a proper noun. It's a name. It's a personal name. And it ends in this suffix, I am im. Whenever you see that, that is a plural suffix. And that demonstrates the plurality of this person we call God. And so all three persons of God are present in Genesis 1 at creation. And John chapter 1 in the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ was present at creation, and he was instrumental in creation. All things were made through him. There was nothing that was made that he did not make. And in Genesis 1, you see the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters. And so all three persons are right there, the triune nature of God. And when you read in Genesis 1, you get to verse 26. What does it say? It says, God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. And God, the three-in-one, creates man to look like him, to be in community like him. And he makes man. And before he makes man, he made the oceans, he made the mountains, he made the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And every time he creates, what does he say? He says, it is good. It is good, it is good, it is good. He makes man. He says, it is not good. For the man to be alone. And so from the very beginning, it is established by the very existence and nature of God that being alone is not good. There's something about us, aloneness with us, that is odd. Something's off. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't like to get alone sometimes. Is it good to get alone sometimes? I got four kids. Man, sometimes being alone is great. 
My wife loves to get alone sometimes, right? We need a recharge. You know, Jesus was that way. He would go away to a solitary place by himself, and he would find strength there. When I was in my 20s, I, uh, I lived alone. I lived in San Diego. My parents lived all the way up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where I grew up. And I, uh, I didn't have a car uh, when I lived in San Diego. And so I relied on my friends to get me around from place to place, and that got old. So one summer, I had a couple weeks off. I called my family. I said, uh, hey, I said, do you still have Big Bertha? Now, Big Bertha was a white 1984 Chevy Caprice station wagon. That's how desperate for wheels I was. And by the way, that's the car I had when I first met my wife. And she still went out with me. Amazing. And I called, and I said, you still got Big Bertha? They said, they said yeah. I said, here's my plan. I've only got enough money for a one-way ticket. I want to fly home, spend a few weeks, and then I want to drive the station wagon back to San Diego from Sioux Falls, South Dakota to San Diego, California. I had never done anything like that before. All by myself. It was going to be my first cross-country solo adventure, right? And I was pumped. I was excited about it. Man, I spent a few weeks with the fam, and then I loaded up Bertha. I had my cassette tapes. I had my beef jerky, and I was ready to hit the road, man. And I'm cranking my tunes, and I'm seeing landscape and critters and mountains and streams and all that, and I'm enjoying it. I'm just loving being on my own. It was exciting. And then Bertha slowly started to die on me. First, the AC went out in the middle of summer, in the middle of Utah. And then she started to overheat, and I had to pull off the side of the road and pop the hood for about a half an hour and then crank her back to life and then hit the road again. And this happened over and over and over, and it's starting to stress me out. And I'm getting a little concerned. I've never done this you know, long trip by myself before, and I had no cell phone back then. And uh, I'm like, i gotta, I got to get somewhere. I gotta get... And I had a reservation at a motel in Provo, Utah. And I limped into Provo. I'm just like, come on, Bertha. Come on, baby, make it, make it. And we get to this motel, and it's on top of a hill. And there's this steep incline up to this motel, and Bertha pulls up to the base of that hill, and she just sputters to a stop. And I'm done, man. I just, I put my head on the steering wheel, and I just pray, God, I need help. About that time, there's a tap on my window. I look over, and there's a big, strapping high school kid looking at me. He says, sir, do you need some help? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, mom, my, my car just died and I got to get up this hill. He says, don't worry about a thing, sir. Put it in neutral. Come on, boys. And about that time, an entire Mormon high school football team <laughs> runs up. And they push me and Bertha up the hill. And I was glad to not be alone. Oh, I was doing fine by myself, but at some point, I needed people. That's how we are made. We need people. And Paul is saying that we need to be grounded as the Christian community in the nature of the triune God who is in community with himself. We are in community. We are to be in community with one another. And by the way, you don't get any closer than the relationship between the three members of the Trinity. They are closer than close. They are the model of relationship. But at some point, as close as they are in eternity past, they purpose together to put a break in their perfect fellowship so that you and I could enter into that fellowship. 
And that's why you see Christ in the gospel, on the cross. And he says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had taken upon him the sin of all of us. And God the Father looked away so that he could pay the price for our sin and thereby allow us to enter into community, not just with the Trinity, but with one another. And that's the design that God has for us. And so we become people of community. And tonight, if you're a young adult, I want to invite you, if you're between 18 and 35 years of age, I want you to invite you to come to a community event to worship. It's a worship service for young adults tonight. We're going to worship the triune God together, 6 p.m. right here. I'll feed you, okay? That's always good for young adults. We got food and we got Jesus music, okay? So you show up tonight at 6 p.m. Secondly, in your notes, why are we in community together? It's the best place to celebrate that all Christians are gifted. All Christians are gifted. Look at verse 7. It says, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, Paul is saying that every believer is given a certain measure of, of Christ's grace. Okay, He has gifted us. How many of you understand that we are all different? That we're not the same. You believe that? We're not the same. We're not a bunch of clones of one another. And I love that he uses language that is individualistic. We know that we are uh, a body. We know that we, there is a collective nature to us. But now he says to each one. Now he's speaking in individualistic terms. We have each been gifted uniquely. God gave you unique personalities. And he gave you unique gift sets. Some people are evangelists. That's the Billy Grahams, the Luis Palau's, that type of people. We've got others who are shepherds and teachers. And we've got people who are servants and who are encouragers and givers and exhorters. We've got a whole mess of people here whose gift is hospitality. And there's a lot of different gifts. And we could study those. I'm not going to go into all of those and what those look like today. But you have a gift. And you should know what that gift is. You know the best way to find out what your gift is? In community. That means you get together with other believers and you get in relationship and they get to know you and you get to know them and you can speak into each other's life and you can tell each other what you have observed in them. Here's what I see in you. You know what? You are a servant. You know what? You are an encourager. You are a gifted teacher. And we learn our gifts in community. And that doesn't normally happen in a room this size because you can't really get to know each other in a room this big. Disciples are not made in the big room. They're often made in the living room. And we call that a life group. And I would encourage you, if you're not in a life group, to consider a life group because you can learn your gift. And Paul writes in the next few verses, and he quotes Psalm 68. And in verse 8, he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And Paul is likening Jesus to a conquering king and in ancient times a king would go into a land and he would conquer the land and he would liberate the slaves he would liberate the captives in that land and he would then as a gesture of goodwill in this new day give them the spoils of victory from the land that he had conquered he would give it to these newly liberated people and paul is saying when he ascended on high that's his victory. He, he, he was crucified at Calvary. He conquered sin on the cross. He ascended to the hand of God. That's his victory. He led a host of captives. Who's that? 
Well, we're in that. We're in that host of captives. We were liberated because we were previously captives in our sin. And he sets us free. And then he gave gifts to men. And so you have a gift. Why? Because your God and King Jesus Christ has conquered. And you have been liberated. And now he is saying, here you go. Enjoy the spoils of my victory. And he's gifted you. And you need to know what your gift is. How do you find out what your gift is? Well... Paul says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Now these four gifts that he lists, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, that's five gifts. These are leadership gifts. Leaders within the body have these gifts, okay? And what are they supposed to do with them? Something very, very important. And point number three in your notes is that community is where you can be equipped to use your gifts. You learn what your gift is in community, and you're going to learn how to use it. You're going to learn how to use it. And it's the job of these people that he lists to teach you how to use it. Okay? Now, the apostles and prophets, those are the guys that God used to pen the scriptures. They're not with us anymore. You know why? Because the scriptures have been written. Nobody's running around writing scripture anymore. The canon of the word of God is closed, okay? But we still have the scriptures, and so now it is the shepherds and the teachers who take the word of God, and we feed the sheep. What does a shepherd do? He feeds the sheep. And so guys like Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Chad and Pastor Scott and Pastor Garth, it's our job to teach and to feed the sheep. And that is the goal of the church, to equip you. The goal of a church is not to grow bigger in number or to have a nice building or to have great attendance or a big offering or any of this thing. The goal of the church is to make disciples, and part of making disciples is to equip them in the gifts that they have. And part of that is overseeing small groups because I can't teach each and every one of you individually. And so we have life groups with facilitators and hosts, and we, uh, through the life groups, help grow the body and equip the body. That's how community works. And what are you equipped to do? In verse 12 it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. Now this word equip has two meanings, and I'm going to give them to you right now. The first meaning of the word equip is mending. Mending, okay? Now that sometimes has a negative uh, connotation, as in fixing something that was broken, repairing something in disrepair, all right? It's the same word used in Galatians when it says that if someone falls in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. Same word. It's the Greek word kartatismos, equip, restore. Kartatismos, it's the same word used for equip here in this passage. So you restore them. It's also the same word when Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees James and John and they are mending their nets. They're repairing their nets. Cardatismos, same word. And the truth is that many of you have come to faith and you've come out of a lifestyle that was broken. You perhaps came from a very immoral background. Maybe it was a broken marriage. Maybe there's a lot of bitterness that was in you. Maybe a lot of unforgiveness, okay? Maybe you struggle in areas of communication. Maybe you have been wounded in your relationships. You feel like you're damaged goods. Maybe you have an unhealthy view of God because you have been abused by those in authority over you in the past. And you come in and you are in need of mending. You're in need of healing as a new believer. That's okay. Because the church is quite often a hospital for people 
who need healing. And so that's what equipping is. Its first phase is to mend you, but it doesn't last forever because at some point you are mended. And then you enter into the second phase of that word equip. And the second phase in your notes is one of reproducing. Reproducing, okay? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, what's the word? Equipped, cardatismos, for every good work. We're talking about making someone effective. That's what happens. You make a disciple in community. What does a disciple make? A disciple makes more disciples. That is the goal of the church, is to make disciples. And by definition, a disciple will make more disciples. And the church is not great at making disciples these days. I don't know why. We've, we've gotten distracted around the world today. We're not as good at making disciples. We're good at making mules. What does a mule do? A mule works. A mule sweats. But a mule, you know what it can't do? It can't make baby mules. Did you know that? A mule cannot reproduce. It's a hybrid. It does not reproduce baby mules on its own. And a disciple that does not make other disciples is limited. It's not really a disciple. But a Christian who cannot duplicate himself, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. If a Christian doesn't do that, he is limited. And so the goal is duplication. And this is how it works. You get into community. I, I've seen new believers come into the church. They get into community. They get into a life group. They begin to grow. They get this thing called the Bible. They open it. They begin to read it. And it, and it blows them away. And they go, whoa, this thing is loaded. And they begin to use it. And it begins to substructure their life. And it begins to substructure their, their, all their relationships, their marriage, their parenting, uh, you know, all of their, their relationships at work and their job and the way they see their life. And you start to talk to them and, and pretty soon you say, how's, how's everything going? And they don't tell you about their job. They tell you about Jesus and what he's doing in, in their life. And then they start to witness. And that's when it gets really fun. And I love seeing new Christians because they are extremely excited about the things of God. And you don't ever want to throw water on that fire. We have a young lady in our church who has uh, just come to faith in the last few years. She's a pretty new Christian. She was saved out of a Mormon background. And she's just kind of caught fire. She got into a small group. She's begun to grow. She started a blog. She's doing all this stuff. She just wants to make a difference. She's very excited about the things of God. She came in a few weeks ago. I was the pastor on duty. And we met. And she said, Pastor Scott, I I'm so excited about something. But I don't know if God is telling me to do something or not. And I said, well, what do you think he's telling me to do? And she said, I think he wants me to go back to my old Mormon church. And every first Sunday of the month, they let you come up and give a testimony. And I think he wants me to go and give a testimony at my old Mormon church about how Jesus saved me from Mormonism. She goes, do you think that God might be telling me to do that? And I said, ah. Uh, uh. I said, well, why don't, why don't we pray about it? What I'm hearing from you is that you are very passionate about seeing people be saved out of the same thing that you were saved out of, and that is great. So we need to pray and ask God, what is the most effective way to do that? What's his will for you to do that? And she prayed, and I prayed. We came together. I said, well, what's God telling you? She says, he's saying to do it. And I said, well, I'm not going to step in front of that bus. You better do it. And she did it. She went, she stood up there, and she boldly told them what Jesus did in her life. And that story, wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that? Holy smokes. 
I'd have paid money to be a fly on that wall. Woo! Now, I don't know what, how, that story has not ended, and there are conversations that have opened up as a result of that. Man, if we would all be so bold as a brand new Christian who has ex- experienced what it means to jump into community and to be shaped and molded and equipped for such a time as this. So pray for her. That's awesome. And this is so exciting. There's nothing better than this. And, and this is supposed to happen in all, all of our lives. Not just a few. We're not supposed to just be a new Christian and be excited and then get jaded and stop. We're supposed to continue to grow because in your notes, point number four, God evaluates a church according to the combined maturity of its total members. Okay? It's total members. It's for all of us. College football has begun. We're in week two. I'm so excited. Every fall, I just I salivate waiting for college football. And my team won last night, and I'm all fired up. All right? Boomer Sooner. Anyway, a prominent college coach was asked in an interview. Uh, the reporter said, how much does college football contribute to the national uh, physical fitness picture? And the coach said, Nothing. And they said, well, why why not? And he said, well, the way I see it, you got 22 guys down on the field in desperate need of rest. you got 40,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. (laughs) Right? And that's how it is in the church, too. you got a handful of people doing all the work, all the growing, all the maturing in the spiritual faith. The rest of us are in the stands eating popcorn and hot dogs. And God has designed the church not to be like a sports event. It's not a spectator sport. We're all supposed to be down on the field, growing together as teammates, working together as teammates. This is what he says in verse 13. Until, what does it say in verse 13? Until some of us come. Is that what it says? No, until all of us come to what? to the unity of the faith, to the unity of the faith. This is one of the components of our maturity, the unity of the faith. What is the unity of the faith? That's that's the idea that we all generally agree on the essentials of doctrine in the church, that we understand the core beliefs of the Christian faith, right? That Jesus Christ was divine, all right? He was God. He is part of three persons of the Godhead. That's the Trinity. He is divine. That's the deity of Christ, he came to this earth in the flesh. That's the incarnation. He, he came to live a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. That's the impeccability of Jesus Christ. He did it for us, all right? He went and paid the price for us because of the sinfulness of man, the sinful nature of man, all right? Uh, so that we would have salvation. That's our soteriology. He died on a cross for our sins, shed his blood. That's the atonement. And then he rose from the grave. That is the, the physical resurrection that we need to believe in. And we put our faith in that, faith alone, in grace alone, so that we would be saved and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and his Holy Spirit came back and indwelled every believer and sealed us that's our eternal security these are the essentials of the faith and we need to agree as a body on those you say well I think we all agree on those that's pretty much the everybody knows that stuff. listen I've been in church work for 20 years it is stunning how many people have grown up in church and do not have a handle on the core doctrine that is necessary for salvation all right Now, why not? Because they only experience the body of Christ in 45 minutes per week. And that is not 
where you learn to absorb this and apply it and see you as a product of all of that. You absorb this and get a handle on it, not in the big room. It happens in small group community. That's where you really explore and grow in your understanding of the unity of faith. And not only the unity of faith, but we're also to grow in what else? It says in verse 13, in the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I'm not talking about just knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus did and knowing about him. You don't just know facts about him. You know him. This word in the Greek is not gnosis, which is informational knowledge. This is epinosis. This is personal, relational, experiential, first-hand knowledge. You personally know the Son of God. You could say, Scott, do you know Billy Joel? I love Billy Joel. He's my favorite artist. I know all of his songs. I got all his records. Man, I've seen him in concert. The Piano Man. I would love to be able to play like Billy Joel. I've got an autographed picture of Billy Joel in my office. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. I don't know him at all, but I, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. Scott, do you know Chris Tomlin? Well, I love Chris. I've sung all of Chris Tomlin's songs as we do in church. How great is our God? You know, great songwriter, great worship leader. I've seen him in concert. I've met him, shook his hand one time. Nice guy. He wouldn't know me from a hole in the ground. Scott, do you know there's a Christian group? There's a Christian group called Anthem Lights. And they've got, a, they've got a young man that sings on that group. His name is Caleb Grimm. Do you know Caleb Grimm? Well, yes, I do. That's my baby brother. He's my little bro. I watched that young man grow up. You know what? I even changed his diapers. Not recently. I was his youth pastor. I was the best man at his wedding. We've traveled the country together. We've laughed together. We've cried together. We've cheered for the cowboys together. We've cried over the cowboys together. Yes, I know him. I know him about as well as anybody. Epinosis. Do you know Jesus Christ? I've heard about him. You don't know him. Um, I've read about him. You don't know him. Well, I'm a baby Christian. I've met him. Do you know him? Do you know him? What do I mean? I mean that if we are believers, we can be in a life group together, and I can come to you, and I can say, hey, what's God doing in your life? And you go, oh, listen. Here's what the Lord's revealing to me. Man, I had a quiet time this morning, and the Lord and I were spending time together. Here's what he revealed. Here's what he showed me. Here's how he's demonstrated his faithfulness just this week in my life, in my family. Here's how he's provided for us. Here's what I'm hearing. I'm supposed to go back to my Mormon church and tell them about this and that and the other. All right? Relationship. Do you know? This is what the New Testament is all about. Uh, Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Do you know? Jesus Christ. To what end? Verse 13 says this is all going somewhere. It's leading us to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. The purpose of this community is to grow so that we become Christ-like and we don't stay immature. He says in verse 14, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament, which is equipped as each part is growing properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Why are we to be unified as the body? Because the body has a head, 
And the head is Jesus Christ. And the head tells the body what to do. And if we're off doing our own thing, then we are not obedient to the head. Community. Why is being in community with other believers important? Two last things in your notes. First of all, so that I might become more like Christ in this relationship. But it ain't just about me. It's also so that they might become more like Christ in this relationship. Iron sharpens iron, and his design for community is that we rub off on each other, and we pour into one another, and we help one another grow toward the goal of being like Christ. Because those winds are going to blow. Those rains are going to come. There's going to be a hurricane that's going to swirl from time to time. Are we going to stay standing? You know, here in California, we've got these beautiful redwood trees, and they're tall. Some of them are 300 feet tall. Some of them are 2,500 years old. Some of them are so big you can drive a car through the middle. You would imagine that trees that big would have roots that would go way down, but they don't. They actually have a very shallow root system. But you know what keeps them standing? Their roots are all intertwined together. And these trees rely on one another to when the winds blow, they remain standing because they are with each other. And they don't just stay standing, they continue to grow. Now, I want you to take your bulletin out right now. And I want you to open it up, and I want you to take out this insert. And on this insert is a map of our fair city. This is Motown right here. We've divided it into four quadrants, northwest, northeast, southwest, southeast, okay? And around it, you see the surrounding areas, the cities that surround our city. And you turn that over, and on this side, in each of those quadrants and in each of the surrounding towns, we have life groups, small group pockets of community. Now, you may be in a life group. You may recall that in the spring, we did a push for people to join life groups. You guys responded. There was over 250 of you that that signed up to be in a life group, and I regret that we were not able to place every single person that wanted to be in a life group because we ran out of room, and that was disappointing. We didn't have enough leaders. We didn't have enough host homes, and so this summer, we purposed to call out again for leaders and for hosts, and we would train them to step out in faith, and our goal was that we would have 25 new life groups. On this sheet of paper, we have 26 brand new life groups ready to receive people to step into community and to begin this journey of growth with one another. People said, I'm going to be obedient. I want to facilitate conversation in the word. People said, I'm going to open up my home and they are waiting for you so that you can grow and so that they can grow. And you can look at that list. And there are different regions there. You might see Southwest has nothing listed. Visit our table out there. If you will look at this and you'll check a place where the location and the time and the night works for you, you check a box, you visit our life groups table, and you can sign up today to be part of a small group community. And our goal is that you will walk away from that table with a card that has the name of a life group and an address, and you can begin. Now, these are, these are only 10-week commitments. It used to be we'd sign you up for the rest of your life to be in a life group. We're signing you up. We do three terms a year, 10 weeks. Then we're going to take a break. You get the month of December off because there's a lot going on in December. 
We'll come back in January. We'll go another 10. We'll take a short break. After Easter, we're going to crank it up again, go another nine weeks. And then you get the summer off unless you just want to keep meeting together, and that's okay. But I would, I would challenge you to take a risk, to take a step of faith, to say, Lord, what do you have for me today in life group community here at Shelter Cove? I want to grow. I want to stay standing like those redwood trees. And that's going to mean that I need to interlock my roots with others so that I can continue to grow and continue to be steadfast in the faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made a way for us to be in community. That in eternity past, you purposed with those in whom you were in perfect relationship, in that trinity, God, to open up the door for us to step into relationship, not only with you, but with one another. May we take full advantage of that to experience the fullness of the body with you as our head. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Go in grace. Live in community. This week, visit our table. Young adults, I'll see you right here at 6 p.m.